Wisconsin's true home team is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Now featuring savings up to $2,500 off an installed patio door, up to $3,000 off an installed entry door, but only through May 31st. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Okay, so you're the glasses half full guy or gal or the glasses half empty guy or gal. You want the good news about the stock market or the bad news? Good news. All right, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is not down as much as it has been several of the last days. But it continues. That's the good news. Bad news is it continues to somewhat crater. Today it's down 171 points three hours before closing after day after day of relentless losing. And I don't know that anybody knows where the bottom is right now. And I understand there's some people who say this is great. It's a buying opportunity. Tough to tell that to people who are close to retirement, who are living on their savings and things like that as the Dow continues to plunge downward. Um, but again, it's it's not down as much as it was the last several days. And the good news and the bad news about the tech-heavy Nasdaq, well, after day after day of brutal losses, the Nasdaq, the good news is it, it's actually up. It's up 49 points. Of course, the bad news is it started the day up about 249 points. So it's dropped about 200 points since the opening. But that's where it is. The economy still very, very rocky. Hey, if you follow me on Twitter, I've got a couple new posts up. It's at Jeff Wagner 621 highlights this story, and it's not a surprise. You knew it was going to not end well. Unfortunately, it's kind of ended worse than many of us hoped. This um, correctional guard in Alabama, her name is Vicki White, who apparently had for two years, under the noses of the jail administrators, had been conducting a had a, having a relationship with this 38-year-old inmate named Casey White, who was serving a 75-year sentence for attempted murder of his former girlfriend and a couple of her roommates. He's awaiting trial on a capital murder case of a murder of a, another woman he was associated with, and. They apparently fell in love, and she sprung him, and they were on the run for, oh, the better part of a week or so. That all ended yesterday when there was a high-speed chase. They ended up getting arrested, and rather than her being taken into custody, she killed herself. Um, after the after the high-speed chase and after the car was run off the road, she killed herself. He was taken back into custody, and you knew you just knew that this was not going to end well, but it's unfortunate that it ended as badly as it did. But uh, that that saga is now over. My guess is there will be a made-for-TV movie coming out about this, you know, in the very, very near future. But it's just, it's an unfortunate incident all around. All right. Again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I have a, a link to the statement that the president made yesterday. And that the headline all across the, the country is, 
low-wage earners to get high-speed Internet for $30 in the Biden program. Actually, they're going to get it for free. I have in my hands, and I've got a link to this on, on Twitter, I have in my hands the fact sheet put out by the Biden administration. President Biden and Vice President Harris reduce high-speed Internet costs for millions of Americans. Here's how it starts. High-speed Internet service is no longer a luxury. It is a necessity. Let me stop there for a minute. I I guess we now have the right to life, liberty, and the ability to stream movies over taxpayer-paid-for-free Internet services. All right. High-speed Internet service is no longer a luxury. It's a necessity. But too many families go without high-speed Internet because of the cost— or have to cut back on other essentials to make their monthly Internet service payments. That's the statement they make. There's no evidence that they present supporting that. Lowering prices, including the cost of high-speed Internet service, is President Biden's top priority. Lowering prices, including the cost of high-speed Internet service, is President Biden's top priority. Hmm. Today, President Biden and Vice President Harris are announcing that they have secured private sector commitments that will lower high-speed Internet costs for millions of Americans' families. So here is, is the deal in a nutshell. If you are a family of four making $55,000 or less, it's actually $55,500 or less, you essentially qualify for free Internet. Now, now free Internet really isn't free. That's a euphemism. Free Internet means the taxpayers pay for the Internet services. And, and what happens is if you qualify, the providers have agreed that the, the government essentially pays the first 30 bucks. The taxpayers pay the first 30 bucks if you qualify, and the providers say, okay, well, what we'll do is we will provide high-speed internet for that 30 bucks that the taxpayers are paying. So it essentially becomes free to, to you. Um, it applies if you're a family of two, you make $36,620, you get taxpayer paid for internet. And the argument is, oh, this is something that we need to do because you, you can't, if you don't have high-speed Internet, you know, this is going to be terrible because you're uh, going to be driving your seven-year-old kid to a McDonald's parking lot so they can jump on on the Wi-Fi. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, if you ask me, gee, is reasonably priced Internet is that a is that a good thing? A- absolutely. There, there's no question about it. But my question is, should the taxpayers be picking up the tab for the internet services of people that are making fifty five thousand dollars a year? And is this really this crisis, or is this again one of these efforts we have of taking taxpayer money? from some people and shifting it over and paying other people. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. So essentially, 
$55,000 or less, you will not have to pay for your internet services. My question is, if the internet is a necessity, well, all right, where, where do we draw the line? I mean, what about access to the stuff that's on the internet? I mean, you know, should the taxpayers be picking up the tab for free HBO or free Netflix or, or free MSNBC? I mean, after all, you know, is that is that not a right as well? Why should some people be able to I don't know, stream stuff. Why should some people be able to get Hulu and other people can't? 855-616-1620. Taxpayer paid for internet for families that make less than $55,000 a year. What do you think? More Jeff Wagner right after this. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Jeff, what's the matter with our president? Where in the world is all this money he's giving away for free coming from? Yes, I know the taxpayers have a hard time keeping up with inflation as it is. Does he want this country to become Venezuela? Sooner or later, you run out of other people's money. Somebody must have said. Um, Jeff, Joe Biden needs the votes badly. We can pay for other people's stuff. How about politicians take a pay cut and, you know, donate for this? 855-616-1620. Jorge in Waukesha. Jorge, you're on WTMJ. So, uh, Jeff, thanks for picking me. Oh, yes, sir. Hey, uh, the question is, yes, the question is this. I, um, I'm going to make him close to whatever the uh, amount of money for a qualifying family of four, right? right? But I'm not going to make it to get that free thing. Right now, I get my internet 55 bucks from AT&T. And it's enough for me to watch two TVs, movies, my kids do the homework, and still play the games. And it's not high speed. It's plenty. Yeah. The president needs to stop giving things to people too much, because there is a lot of people that are making more money than that, not reporting a lot of cash and you know what? On top of that, they're going to have that extra. Come on. This person needs to change. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. No, yeah, I mean, I- I- exactly. Okay, so Jorge says uh, for 55 bucks, he, he, he's got the, he, he gets the Internet, and it's plenty enough, and he, he's able to afford it. Okay, $55,000 for a family of four. I mean, give me a break. Jeff, the majority of our home Internet use is for entertainment purposes, roughly 90%. The remaining 10% goes towards financial management and some schooling. And to manage that last 10% does not require inter- high-speed Internet services. See, that's the, that's the ugly truth about all this. I mean, think about what most people use their Internet for. It, it is for the entertainment stuff. And there's no limits on, on this. I mean, there's, there's no limits. not like, hey, if you qualify for the I'm not even going to say free. The taxpayer paid for Internet services. What that means is there's no limits on it. It's not saying, hey, you have to use it so you can, I don't know, do your homework or or study online or something. There's no limits like that, no. And you know darn well the way most of this is going to be used. It's going to be used for, again, entertainment. It's going to be used for here. I've got my email thing. I'm going to watch. I'm going to Facebook. I'm going to be on Twitter. All of which, all of which are, are decent things. I mean, I'm not against Facebook. I'm not against Twitter. I'm not against surfing the net. But you know darn well that that's where most of this is going to get used. And so we're expecting the taxpayers 
to pick up the tab. And that means, I don't know, people who are on fixed incomes. That means people who are living off of their retirement savings. That means the people that are are working, those two family households that are out there working, mom and dad are both working, and you're pulling in 75 grand a year, and you're now paying close to five bucks a gallon for you know regular unleaded gasoline, and you're looking at the cost of everything going up, and you are supporting people who are making 55 grand so so they can, again, go on Twitter and they can check out their emails on the Internet. It's just, it, it is mind-boggling the fact that we've now, and now we're treating like high-speed Internet as a necessity. And that's that's not me. That's what Biden is saying. It is now high-speed Internet is a necessity. No, no. Food might be a necessity, which is why we have government-subsidized food programs. Healthcare, if you want to argue healthcare is a necessity, that's the whole premise behind Obamacare and things like that. But now high-speed internet is something that the taxpayers are supposed to pay for? Is it nice? Yes. Is it more difficult if you don't have access to high-speed internet to do some things? I'm sure it probably is. Much more difficult to surf the web. But at some point in time, do we say enough is enough when it comes to um, this? Um, Jeff, good old Uncle Joe continues to pander. I mean, well, I think there is an element of that. Jeff, I don't disagree, but heat and water are actual necessities. Well, that's why, for example, you know, we have government programs which help subsidize people for their utility costs or, or things like that. That's why we have moratoriums that we put into place to prevent the heat from being turned off in, in the winter. So we have all those different things. But is, is really, are we going to elevate high-speed Internet to the same level as, well, again, uh, other sorts of utilities. And, I mean, I think some people think it is. Um, Jeff, this is great for, you know, vote buying. Well, I, I think, you know, this is it. Jeff, how are taxpayers paying for this? Are your taxes going up because of this? Well, no, it's deficit spending is what it is. And so you're actually going to be paying a lot of money for this because, you know, what you're going to be dealing with is, again, we're, we're financing it, we're printing money. So this also, by the way, contributes to inflation. So, you know, you, you've got that element that's going there too. Jeff, I believe that some of the people getting the free stuff might might have some of the best cell phones, etc. I don't know about that, but it's there. Jeff, internet is not a necessity. Sure, we and, and by the way, this is high speed internet. Right? This is high speed internet, not just some of the internet that you have to wait a little while for it to download. Jeff, the internet is not a necessity. Sure, we would all like to have the internet and free is even better. However, I live in an area where internet access is limited and have to utilize jetpacks, which if I if I have to pay for if I want access to it. Um, yeah. Jeff, what about all the subsidies the telecom industry gets already, and there are only one or two available in most areas? Take what we are spending on the subsidies and this initiative to spur competition and let the market drive down costs and make it more affordable. Well, yeah, you've got, you know, that element of that as well. So look, I, I don't mean I don't mean to be this heartless guy. I, I get it. I, I would like stuff for free too. 
But the truth of the matter is there is no free lunch when it comes to government payments. Somebody has to pick up the tab. And at some point in time, don't we have to prioritize where we are going to be spending money? And I guess when it comes to the Biden administration, the answer is the sky is absolutely the limit. And again, you know, Joe Biden says that this is this is one of his top priorities. Lowering prices, including the cost of high-speed Internet service, is President Biden's top priority. Well, I would argue maybe trying to figure out how to lower gas prices and food prices and things like that, how to try to get inflation under control, might be the top priority. This, as so many of the Biden policies, moves in exactly the opposite direction. But if you're looking for free high-speed Internet, well, all right, you're, you're there. That's the big accomplishment of the Biden administration. Back with more in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Waterstone Bank and WTMJ's Steve Scafidi are once again partnering to recognize the heroes in our community. Police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others help every day to protect our families. They're the first on the scene when critical accidents and unfortunate events occur. Do you know a first responder that deserves recognition for their duties? If so, head to WTMJ.com and make your nomination now. And please hurry. The nomination period ends May 13th. That is Friday. It's Waterstone Bank's Salute to Service on News Radio WTMJ. It is 1230. Let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Mike Spaulding. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. WTMJ. The final Jeopardy answer is 325 and counting. What is the question? Well, the question is how many shootings, fatal and non-shooting, have there been in the city of Milwaukee thus far this year. And I say in, there's 73, according to the Milwaukee Police Department, their most recent chart, and this is a, behind by a couple days. I don't think this includes the carnage over the weekend of the 14 shootings and the three homicides. But the, the numbers they have, 73 homicides year to date, 252 non-fatal shootings. That's 325. My guess is that's probably low by about 15, I, I think, because I don't think that includes some of the, the stuff that happened over the weekend. And of course, just if you were listening to Mike Spaulding's newscast just a couple minutes ago, and why wouldn't you? Um, we, we now have th- this triple shooting at, at the McDonald's on 49th and Hampton. And, and I just, I, I stopped for a second because as somebody who, who grew, I grew up in the North Shore, right? I grew up in Glendale. Hampton Avenue used to be the, the major, one of the major east-west thoroughfares that I would routinely take if I didn't want to go, if, if I didn't want to get on the freeway or, or whatever, you'd go across, you know, Hampton Avenue. That that was just a routine way. If you wanted to go from Glendale or Whitefish Bay and you wanted to get across to Brookfield or whatever, Hampton was, was a regular route I would take. You couldn't pay me to drive on Hampton Avenue now. You, you just couldn't. And this is the story. It's um, Saturday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. Just a, a gun battle breaks out. And I've said this before, you know, to describe Milwaukee as the wild, wild west is an insult to the wild, wild west because, you know, normally even when you had the the worst shootings in Dodge City or wherever, it wasn't necessarily going to be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that is precisely what happened Saturday afternoon. 
You had um, just a shooting break, shots fired all over, bullet holes going through the window at the McDonald's. Two boys, 15 and 16, were killed in the crossfire. One died on the scene, and now the um, 15-year-old died yesterday. The third teen, 14-year-old, remains in in critical condition. And, I mean, I'm looking at the story that Channel 12 did on this, and they're, they're, they're interviewing people that live in the neighborhood, and they're they're not they're they're not surprised about this. They say, well, yeah, you know, we you know we we heard this, you know, we heard the gunfire and stuff, but this this just happens, you know, all the time. Uh, it just it happens all the time. Can you imagine living in an environment like this where oh, this another day, just another shooting? You've got teenagers that that are killed because they happen to be in McDonald's at three o'clock. And you know, here's the other just the the other truth of this. Anybody who was driving on Hampton Avenue making that, again, it's an east-west thoroughfare, you could have been there. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We're not even talking about 3 o'clock in the morning. You could be driving by at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because, again, you're trying to get from Shorewood or Whitefish Bay and you want to get across or Glendale and, and you want to go to Brookfield or wherever. You could have been in the middle of this because the people that are out on the streets just don't care. Then, of course, you've got these other various stories that are out there. So you've got the, the two kids that are dead. Um, you have the other one that is fighting for life. We have the story out of West Alice where the 19-year-old sailor died. Um, he was killed late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. The family says that he was trying to protect a friend, 19-year-old sailor. Um, he ends up getting shot. And they're, they're still looking for that. West Dallas police say that happened around 2.30 a.m. Police say the sailor had a verbal altercation with a man in a vehicle, and the man shot him. He just, he just, he shot him. I mean, this is just it. Now they're looking for, you know, the person that did that. And then while it doesn't rise to the level of a murder— It's still one of these things that just gets my attention. Milwaukee police are asking for the public's help to identify and locate the suspects wanted in an armed robbery near 60th and Chambers on the afternoon of May 6th. Okay, so this is, what's today, the 10th? So this is a couple days ago. May 6th happens in the middle of the afternoon. There's two kids, two juveniles, who are walking their dog. Right? They've got a four-month-old white and tan bulldog. What apparently happens is this car pulls up, and you have two guys who, at gunpoint, wearing one of them is wearing a black ski mask, a black jacket, and black pants, the other um, black firearm. They, they, they pull up, and they rob, they steal the dog at gunpoint. They stole the dog. These kids are out walking their dog, 60th and Chambers, in the middle of the afternoon the other day, and they get robbed at gunpoint and they steal the dog. There are now. I guess that the, the good news is the that the robbers didn't um, didn't shoot the two kids, but they took their dog. You look here's where it is in the city of Milwaukee nowadays. You you can't go to a McDonald's at three o'clock in the afternoon because you might die in a hail of bullets. You can't. 
in West Dallas, I don't know, try to stand up for a friend because you might die in a hail of bullets. You can't walk your dog on the street in the middle of the afternoon because you might have some people pull up and dog jack you, essentially. This is what this has come to. It is complete and total chaos. It is anarchy. And I do not know how people continue to put up with living under these conditions. Nobody should have to live in a situation where you can't go to a fast food restaurant at three o'clock or you can't drive past 49th and Hampton on a Saturday afternoon for fear that you or your loved ones are going to die in a hail of bullets. And yet that is precisely where we are. And nobody should have to live in a situation where you can't take your dog out for a walk lest you're afraid that somebody is going to pull up and rob, steal your dog at gunpoint. We have, there is this criminal element, and I think it's a lot of largely juvenile, but there's certainly adults that are out there as well that are just running amok. They are not afraid of authorities. They are not have no respect for anything or anyone. They are not afraid of authorities. They are not afraid of consequences. It is completely like escape from New York, where you have these criminal elements that are out there preying on on people. So, all right. So, what? Where? Where are we going with this? Well, you know, after. After the shootings outside the McDonald's, you had a couple of the, the community activists, and, and I, I appreciate what, what they're trying to do, and they're saying, okay, well, part of this thing is we, we need, it kind of goes back to the old Hillary Clinton thing of, of it takes a village. And, you know, if you, and, and the point is that the, some of these community activists are saying is in some of these crime-ridden neighborhoods, which is an expanding number of places. You know, part of the problem is people don't know their neighbors, they don't socialize with their neighbors, they don't even know who they are, and as a result, there, there's not, you don't have the community watches and these block groups and stuff like this. Well, first, I, I understand why people might not know their neighbors, because in a lot of areas, they're probably just afraid to go outside, because if you go outside on your front porch, you know, chances are you might get shot by a stray bullet that's flying around. So you've got that element there. But, I mean, some of these community groups are trying to say, okay, what we need to do is we need to get people together. We need to have people take be more proactive in kind of taking back their blocks. And I, I don't disagree with that a, as a concept. But it's tough to put that into reality. I think one of the things that contributes to all this problem is the fact that you have, in many, many neighborhoods, you have people who are just frustrated, they're beaten down psychologically, and they just are afraid to step up and and do the, the right thing. My guess is, if we look at I don't know. The numbers, like I say, 73 homicides, 252 shootings. Uh, a large number of those are unsolved. If you do like I do and you read the stories, you see it's always that the final thing is police are looking for suspects. That, that's pretty much it. My guess is in the vast majority of these cases, there are people who know who was responsible for the shooting. But for whatever reasons, they're deciding not to come forward and not to cooperate. And I understand part of it's the whole stop snitching culture. But it seems to me that there's only so much that law enforcement can do. And there's only so much that the court system can do. And we've talked about this repeatedly on the programs about how, I I mean, I, I do think 
In Milwaukee County, I think the DA's office has failed. I think the court system has failed. And and you've seen this getting worse and worse for a number of years. And I think that's fair to talk about. But at the same time, unless neighborhoods are willing to stand up and say enough is enough, and we are not going to tolerate this. And, you know, when we're when we see those people that show up outside the McDonald's and they start shooting, somebody knows who those people are. And probably a lot of people know who they are. And people need to be willing to come forward, take some risks, and again, start cooperating with the police. Because until you start cooperating with the police, well, you let the bad guys run amok, and they're going to do it again, and they're going to do it again, and they're going to do it again. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I understand that there's personal risk, potentially, but it seems to me that we're never, ever, ever going to get a handle on violence unless and until average people stand up and say, we're not taking this anymore, and we're we're going to cooperate with authorities. We're going to identify the people who are responsible for for killing these other people. We're not going to take it anymore to channel the old movie network and tell members of the community, get to a point where they're willing to stand up and say, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take this anymore. This kind of stuff is going to go on and on and on. And I frequently you know, blame the court system. I blame the DA's office for what I think has been a lousy response over the years. And I think that's fair. But at the same time, now it's gotten so bad that you, you've got to expect all the decent people who are the vast majority of people who are living in these high crime neighborhoods to, I, I think they've got to say, we've had enough. And we're, we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And when we see these gangbangers or we see these people that are walking around with the guns in their pockets and stuff like that, we're calling the cops and we're showing up at the sentencings and we're showing up at the court proceedings and we are demanding that there be some accountability. Is that too much to ask for? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, with the rapidity that some of the criminal element is caught and released in Milwaukee, the good people who might come forward might be afraid of retribution from the person who was just released. Well, I, I, I acknowledge that that's part of the, this whole no-snitching culture that's out there, but but that's that's got to change. I mean, people... It's a profiles and courage moment. People need to step forward and they need to cooperate. And then the responsibility on top of that is then the police and the district attorney's office and the courts then have to protect those people for from doing the right thing. Now, one of our texters in Illinois says, Jeff, stop talking about the crime problem unless and until you are willing to advocate for, number one, the recall of John Chisholm. Oh, OK, I agree. Chisholm is a disaster. There, there's no question about it. And the Chisholm catch and release problem problems and situations and programs over the last several years have led directly to where we are now. I, I I agree entirely. And one of my frustrations is that people who live in Milwaukee County, and I'm not one of them, have been willing to tolerate this for years. It's not a secret. Chisholm has made a Chisholm gets national awards from going around and talking about how he releases people onto the street. Well, he's been releasing dangerous people for the longest time, and now we're surprised they're committing crimes. So, yeah, st- start a recall movement for, for John Chisholm, somebody in Milwaukee County. I'm, I'm all for it. But the, the problem is, as I frequently say, a 
elections have consequences. And if you live in Milwaukee County, and by the way, the surrounding counties as well, because it's it's not just it's not just limited to again the city of Milwaukee. Because what you do is, for example, you you have you have the car thefts that that spread all over. I mean, it's not like, gee, I'm a I'm a 15 year old car thief and I'm only going to be steal. I'm going to stop at the city line before I I steal cars. No, they go out to the suburbs. So it is a regional problem. There, there's no question about it. Worse in the city. But I guess my point here is, you, you need to have. It does take a village here, and people need to say, we're tired of this. We're not, we don't want to live in a community where we are held hostage by the bad guys, where our 14 and 15 and 16-year-old children can't go to a McDonald's on 49th and Hampton at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon without fear that they're going to end up in the morgue. We don't want to live in a community where our kids can't you know, in the middle of a Friday afternoon, walk their four-month-old dog on the street without fear that they are going to be held up at gunpoint and have their dog stolen. At, at some point in time, the community has to say, this is enough, and, and we're, we're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to tolerate the politicians who allow this to, to go on, but also we're going to stand up ourselves. We're not going to allow ourselves to live in in fear. So, you know— what can you do? Let's talk to Tim in Appleton. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm 81, and I remember the good old days, 60s, when the rock and roll hit, and the gangsters were out with their hair drawn back. What they do at Naughty Boys, they sent them into service for some discipline. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that if you want to discipline young boys and girls, send them into the military for two years, and teach them discipline. And they don't get out until they understand what discipline is. And if they do get out without being what knowing what discipline is, they get out with no teeth. Well, <laughs> they, they, well I, Tim, I mean, here, here's the, I mean, look, I guess that's, I, I understand, and maybe that was a product of, of a different time and stuff. That That's not where we are in 2022. Now, I do believe, for example, I, I'm a big believer in things like juvenile boot camps and stuff like that, and I'm a big believer in what we call the broken windows philosophy, and that is that the first time you steal a car, instead of getting slapped on the wrist and sent back to mom and dad who don't give a rat's rump about you, and then you're out stealing cars again, there needs to be some accountability, and maybe it's some confinement, maybe it's juvenile boot camps, things like that, because I do agree with you, consequences and discipline is important. I, I don't necessarily think it's I don't think it's it's the military that's going to provide that nowadays. But but here's the bottom line, and and I agree with some of the community activists here. It is important for people to know their neighbors. It's important for people to stand up and say, "We're tired of living like this. We do not want to be held hostage on our communities." And yes, maybe you know for a period of time this is going to involve some personal risk because yeah, we're going to stand up and we're going to say, "Yeah, I know who it was that shot those kids," and now I, we're going to identify. We're going to be willing to testify, etc. But you send a message to the other punks out there that they're not going to be able to just dominate the streets. Back with more in just a minute. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI-HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. 
One of our texters, Mr. Jeff Wacker, says, Jeff, what we really need is more trigger locks for our guns. That would make a huge difference. He's, of course, referring to the big announcement yesterday. Here, we're going to offer free trigger locks on guns. And look, I'm not against trigger locks as a responsible gun owner. Yeah, the, the, the gun should be locked up. No, no question about it. And, and maybe <clears throat> by encouraging people to put trigger locks on, you prevent uh, some six-year-old from grabbing a gun and, and killing their sibling or themselves. I, so I don't have a problem with trigger locks. But let's be honest. When it comes to dealing with the out-of-control crime problem, this this has nothing to do with that. The, those the people that, that shot the fifteen, shot and killed the fifteen and sixteen-year-old, and critically injured the fourteen-year-old, they could care less about trigger locks. Back with more in a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. If there is a Republican wave in, in November, there's going to be a lot of reasons for it, inflation and things like that. But one of the things is going to be because people are frustrated with the education system. If you look at what led the Republican to win the governorship in Virginia, for example, last fall, one of the big issues that they ran on was the fact that you know people were frustrated about the way the bureaucrats and the educational establishment had decided to run people's educations. Here, here is a classic example of that. The phrase is called de-leveling, de-leveling, and it's one of the big trends in modern education now, and there's a story out of Rhode Island where parents are starting to fight back. Now, let me, let me kind of back into this topic. When I was in grade school, Went to grade school with a um, guy named Dan, and Dan was a mathematical genius. There, there's just no question about it. And when we were in, and, and by the way, I'm not. I, I'm just, I, I'm not. That was, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm good with numbers and stuff, but I was also kind of competitive. So I remember we were like in seventh grade and things like that, and and you know, I, I wanted. I wanted to compete with Dan. And pretty quickly, early on, I, I just realized I just wasn't in this guy's league. Now, there's things that I could do that Dan couldn't do, but but that's all. We all have our own niches. But Dan was absolutely brilliant. And Dan went on to high school, and his he really flourished in the area of mathematics. And he was in every—I went to Nicolay High School in the 70s, and back then they had this— very, very renowned like math program and stuff like this that won all these national honors. And and Dan Dan flourished in that. And and that again, it, it wasn't just my strength, but I I didn't resent Dan. But I I mean and I as a matter of fact I, I appreciate it. this guy was just acing all these different honors math classes and he went on to uh, do very, very well in college and last I, I kind of lost track of him over the years, but I, I know early on he was like working at the National Institute of Health and he was one of these guys trying to fear, find a cure to cancer or anything like that. Just absolutely brilliant. And and one of the things was when we were in high school it it was very very good that there was like this honors math track that that he was on because he could do the work he was just absolutely brilliant for most of us and i include myself in that 
we just I, I just I couldn't keep up. You know, this guy was doing math that probably, you know, when he was a freshman in high school, he was doing math or had the ability to do math that, that people who were, you know, juniors in college were doing. It, it was just he he was accelerated. And and there were I went to school with a bunch of other people who had that ability as well. So when I was in high school, we, we had different tracks. You had honors classes. You had honors math classes for the people that were, I don't know, had higher abilities or higher aptitudes or whatever than others, all right? Because the truth of the matter is, if you put me in an honors math class, and I can admit this years later, I would have been lost. It was just the, no matter how hard I would try to work and know how much I wanted, the, the work was, was above me, okay? It was at an advanced level. Now, similarly, I did really well. I was in honors English and honors history and things like that. So there, there were things that I, I did that, you know, I could do, and I had an aptitude that maybe some of the other students couldn't. All right, so I'm a big believer in that. Well, I come to the story. It's a, it's a high school out of Rhode Island, but this is, this is something that's going on across the country. It's this public high school. It's called in Barrington, Rhode Island. And historically, it has been one of like the top 100 high schools in in the country. And they crank out kids that go on to Ivy League schools. And historically, they get all sorts of scholarships and things like that. And it's also been a school that has been a magnet. Parents move into the school district they pay higher taxes because they respect the fact that this is this is a really good advanced school, and they believe that the academic rigor helps set their children up for you know getting into Ivy League schools or getting merit scholarships or whatever, right? So for years and years, this school has had an honors program, not unlike honors programs, not unlike you know what what I had when I went to high school. They've now done away with this over the last couple of years. They call it de-leveling which is a system of universal learning. And the idea behind this is what you want to do is you don't want to feel some student, make some students feel like they are quote-unquote inferior. So in other words, you, you don't want to have an honors level class. You want to have standard learning across the board because otherwise the kids that can't do the advanced math stuff, the kids like me who would be lost with the concepts that Dan was working on when he was a sophomore in, in, in math class in high school, stuff that I, I just wouldn't have been able to do, well, you don't want to make Jeff feel bad because he can't do that work. I'm looking at this story, and there's a – I don't even understand some of the, the speak that they throw around. A woman named Katie Novak, a consultant who worked with this high school and got him to get rid of the honors classes, believes de-leveling – allows for the dismantlement of ableist structures. Deleveling allows for the dismantlement of ableist structures. I don't even know what the you know what that means. Too, this is what she says. Too many individuals and schools support oppressive and ableist structures where access to advanced court work, coursework is a privilege that students have to earn. All students deserve opportunities to access grade-level instruction and become expert learners. And this is not possible when we continue to track students in different levels based on antiquated models of school success. 
she touts one universal design for learning. Interestingly, since this high school adopted this, its rankings have plunged to 308 on a list of top high schools in the country, down from like 180 in 2019. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this is this is educational, like, doublespeak, but it's de-leveling. We've got to do away with ableist structures. We can't have honors math classes and honors English classes and honors history tracks because, well, okay, some people might not be able to get on them. So they're learning. They don't get as much learning. Well, my, my response would be <laughs> honors math classes challenge the best and the brightest. Honors English classes challenge the best and the brightest. Honest, honors history classes do the same. I think this idea that we've got a D-level and we don't want to reward excellence and we don't want to challenge the best students, I think that is exactly the wrong way to go. And the, you, get away, you do away with the honors classes, and, and what you're essentially doing is you're taking those best and brightest students and you're putting them in a situation where, yeah, they're, they're going to get A's, but they're not going to be challenged and they're not going to learn all they possibly can. Can't we realize that people have different abilities and people learn at different abilities and we're not all the same and we all have different strengths and weaknesses? And why in God's green earth, if you've got those math geniuses or the music prodigies, let's take music. I I did not get the music gene in our family. Oh, okay, you know, so does that mean if I'm taking a high school music class, you can't have an advanced class that rewards the people that have a lot of musical talent and understand all this, and they've got to be stuck in a class with somebody like me as I'm trying to figure out how to play chopsticks on the piano? 855-616-1620. D-leveling, to me, is... is it's sort of like a recipe for mediocrity. And why do we want to be mediocre? 855-616-1620, we discuss. Stay tuned. Jeff Wagner returns after this on WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff, by all means, let's hold back our highest achievers. Lord forbid every child gets an education that actually meets their needs. Truly a backward way of thinking. Just imagine what these bright young minds could do if their needs were met and they were allowed to advance at their own own pace. Yeah. Here's a text. Jeff, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a proud parent of a high school junior. Our school district has long been one of the top in the Commonwealth, with the vast majority of grads going on to two- or four-year higher learning. Up until two years ago, the district offered three levels of core curriculum classes, standard for those not pursuing college, advanced, and honors. Um, Both the top two were for the college-bound. They have since eliminated the standard-level classes and have lowered the content and rigor of the curriculum of the advanced classes to make them more inclusive. My son would have been considered advanced for math and English under the former curriculum, but is currently forced to take honors and AP classes to keep him challenged and in line with his post-high school goals. The honors classes are beyond capacity with over 30 students in a class, while the advanced classes have 8 to 15 kids. He and his peers are out over their skis in some of their courses, and their grade point averages are suffering, but the curriculum offered in the realigned classes no longer supports their academic needs. 
The result of this supposed leveling of the playing field is being noticed by universities. Elite schools, such as our flagship university, UVA, are denying or waitlisting top students who formerly would have been shoe-ins. Grade point averages over 4.5 now look merely above average when your competition in high-level classes has been diluted. You know, absolutely. There's no question about it. Jeff, we had the same thing happen. I had our school in Oshkosh. They tried a new inclusionary model or all students in the same class at different levels. It totally destroyed education at that school. The students in that classroom um, were were five chapters behind in math as an example. I had to hire a tutor to get my kids caught up to the next school system. I was told I would not expect my kids would get the same education as other fifth graders in the city. 855-616-1620. Scott in Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Former teacher and under the auspices of uh, de-leveling, why don't we advocate for not worrying about grade levels then? So in other words, if I'm reading at a, what would be a formerly third grade level and I'm a first grader, then put me in with the third grade level readers. Yeah. If you're going to de-level everything, then put them on a competency track, not an age track or a grade level track. Once they master the subject, then they move on. And let's let's uh, de-level in that way instead of this silliness about Right. Not, Lowering the bar and not holding our kids to a higher standard. Yeah. No, thanks. For, right. Exactly. I mean, the bottom line is not everybody is going to be as good at, at everything as other people are. And, and when did we get to this point where we, we don't want to take the, the, the kids who are exceptional in a particular area and encourage them to do everything they can to, I mean, demonstrate that that exceptional ability. If you're a sophomore in high school and you are capable of doing math at a college level, why why don't we why don't we try to challenge you and allow you to do that? Why do we have to say we're going to get rid of the honors courses? And, and again, I, I look at this and see this is I'm just telling you. If you wonder why people are upset with the educational system, it's silliness like this. Like I quoted this this consultant. Too many individuals and schools support oppressive and ableist structures. I don't for the life of me even know what that means. Where access to advanced coursework is a privilege that students have to earn. So in other words, you you have that that talent. If you demonstrate that you can do work above, you know, where the average student is, Okay, well, you know, all right, then then what's wrong with saying, okay, we're going to give you that work? All students deserve opportunities to access grade-level instruction, sure, and become expert learners, and this is not possible when we continue to track students in different levels. Well, give me a break. Of, of course it is. That's why I went back with this example. You could have when I was a freshman in high school, you could have put me in these advanced – I wasn't in the honors math classes because I, I would have loved to have been, but that's just – I did not have that aptitude. And I, I'm, 
I, I knew that at the time. I knew what was the phrase one of our texters used, over my skins, skis. I, I knew that. I, I understood that. That just wasn't where my aptitude was. But I, I had other aptitudes that, that maybe some of the kids who were the brainiacs in math or, or in certain aspects of science didn't have. So we all kind of found our own niches. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have that honors math track just because, well, not everybody can do the work. What you want to do is recognize that people have different aptitudes, and let's encourage it, as opposed to this desire that we're just going to, like, level things out. Oh, somebody might feel bad if you don't put them in if they're not in the honors math class. Or, gee, if if they get put on a track that reflects their ability to do work, well, okay, that's that's going to be fine. They might resent the fact that the person is doing other sorts of work. And and by the way, even if you're – look, if if I was – not in the honors math classes, but let's say I'm acing the more standard math classes, my guess is that there would be somebody who say, hey, maybe you should really be moving up to those honors math classes because this work isn't challenging enough for you. Nobody ever came to me with that. But let let us let people be exceptional. And this idea that we're going to try to just even the playing field because it's going to make some people feel better, that is, that's just the dumbing down of the system. And why do we want to do that? Don't we have to realize that there's going to be some people who are better at some stuff than other people? Do we say, and a couple of our texters are making this example, do we say to the basketball players, all right, we're not going to have, we're not going to have cuts on the varsity basketball team. Uh-uh. Anybody who wants to come out for, for basketball, we're, we're going to let you play. We're not going to go with the five most talented athletes or the best basketball players or whatever. Anybody that wants to sign up, that's fine, and we're going to rotate you in, kind of like they do in Little League where everybody has to play at least an inning or something like that. That's what we're going to do because, you know, we, we don't want to have these different tracks that recognize that as an athlete, you, you have, you're much better at playing basketball, and we don't want the people that aren't as good to feel bad. Let's de-level sports as well. It doesn't make any sense when it comes to sports, and it doesn't make any sense at all when it comes to academics. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I was in honors classes, our texture says, but sucked at sports. So co-ed gym was traumatic. Life is hard. We aren't all good at everything. That is the reality. Okay, and then actually one of one of our texters who has this insight. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about the, I was talking about the, and reading the quotation from the consultant who decided that it was a good idea to delist, that's again the, the phrase, that de-level the phrases because um, having honors classes provides for ableist structures I, I don't which I don't even have any idea what what that means so and my guess is that again it's this kind of this educational double speak so anyhow one of our texters says just as disturbing I'm willing to bet that the person proposing this has a doctorate behind her name and you know what during the break, I checked. Absolutely right. Nailed it at one. Yes, this is the, the woman who's presenting this. She's got a, she's got a doctorate, doctor so-and-so. Yeah, which which just shows that, that sometimes, sometimes a little education can be a dangerous thing, and a lot of education can be even more of a dangerous thing. De-leveling. Give me a break. 131. Let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Mike Spalt. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
There are almost 650,000 people whose lives are touched by the Wisconsin Retirement System, which covers employees of the UW system, local police, firefighters, and publicly employed teachers. Join Annex Wealth Management and WTMJ Steve Scafidi for a special webinar, Understand Your WRS Potential, on Wednesday, May 18th at 4 p.m. Retirement planning can be complex. What does your most recent statement mean for your plan? No matter your age or retirement status, learn more as we walk through pension scenarios and answer WRS questions. Register for the free webinar at AnnexWealth.com slash events. You know, during the newscast, we were playing a commercial. I, actually, I, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the program. It's the Wisconsin Bed and Breakfast Association. It's really sort of interesting. I got a chance to meet with their the, the president of the association. We did it actually an interview for the, the Sunday SIP. And it was just actually fascinating. I didn't realize there's like 50 bed and breakfasts across the, the state of Wisconsin. And it's so interesting. You think of bed and breakfast as being like the Victorian homes, and, and there's some of that, but there's all sorts of other things. There's there You can find places on lakes and all, and it's really kind of an exciting concept. And I, I admit that I'm kind of motivated to want to try this out. There's nothing wrong with hotels, but you get the chance to check out some of these very cool bed and breakfasts in different places across the state, and um, it's certainly worth paying attention to, and I want to welcome that new sponsor to the program as well. All right, I, I just... I'm going to just climb back up on my soapbox politically for just a minute or two before we move on to uh, vacations. The latest entry into the Republican primary is a guy named Tim Michaels, who's, of course, you know, his his family, his mom and dad started the Michaels Corporation, and he and his brothers have really taken it up to the next level. It's this, this major infrastructure company. They employ 8,000 people worldwide. And Tim Michaels, who was the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate in 2004. He's, he's entered the, the governor's race, and he's entered it in a big way and running all sorts of um, TV ads, for example. And, I mean, I thought, oh, this is, this, this is good. It's somebody else who's, you know, coming in, and he's got, of course, that, that business person's experience and perspective. And I thought that's, you know, that, that's, that's very, very good. My, my advice to him and my advice to... Rebecca Clayfish, and my advice to Kevin Nicholson is to just you you got to move on from this 2020 uh, election. And so I guess I was a little bit disappointed when I see the headline in the local newspaper. And by the way, the, the local newspaper is all in for, for Tony Evers, and their Madison correspondent all in for Tony Evers. And that I think one of the ways that they figure that they can marginalize Republican candidates is if they can keep asking questions about, was the 2020 election stolen? Because while a handful of people feel okay, that that's a voting issue, I think most people are saying, okay, it's time to move on. So the headline is, Tim Michael says maybe the 2020 election has been stolen, even though Biden's win has been repeatedly confirmed. That's the the headline, which, again, shows you the slant of the local newspaper. But my point is, you know, Republican candidates, all of the major candidates, need to move beyond the, the 2020 election. We, I think everybody would agree that there were things that happened in the 2020 election which weren't necessarily what I would describe as, as best practices. And there's no question in my mind that you had some election clerks, particularly in some of the heavily Democratic areas, who adopted policies and procedures which were designed to juice the turnout in, again, some of these heavily Democratic areas. 
And I, I, I don't know. The, the law, in many respects, is unclear as to some of the procedures, okay, that, that were undertaken. You know, is there massive fraud in terms of, gee, you've got you know, tens of thousands of people who were dead that voted? No, there's no evidence of that. Is there any evidence that people who voted for Trump had their votes converted to votes for Biden? No, there, there, there's none of that. What you have is a question of what some of the best practices were. But the quicker Republicans can move from that this oh, the election was stolen and being obsessed about 20 2020 and move to focus on what is important in 2022. Like, did you notice that gas prices are $4.50 a gallon? Are you watching what is going on at the grocery store? How do you feel about crime? Are you happy with the educational establishment? The more you focus on on these issues— as opposed to allow the media to suck you in to this obsession with, well, gee, do you think the election was stolen and what does that mean and kind of the definition of what is is, that the sooner you're going to see poll numbers go up and you're going to sooner you're going to see like winning campaigns. And then, of course, you've got the other headline, one of the Republican candidates, this state assemblyman, Tim Rantham, who was down here the other week, he doubles down on uh, impossible election nullification and says Speaker Robin Voss should be prosecuted. And again, this is this this craziness about let's nullify the election, let's decertify the election, which is again, that's like the the best example I had was that's the angry guy at two o'clock, that's the angry drunk at two o'clock in the morning who's out there railing about how the Packers should have run the ball more. They should have run the ball more. Um, th- that's that's what this is. That's the tinfoil hat crowd. And you got to understand, if you're a Republican, that you've got the media that's going to try to portray everybody as being like that. So these candidates, I mean, they, they play into the media hysteria and hype. And I guess my advice would be don't allow yourself to get drawn into that. All right, when we come back, let's talk about vacations. Stick around. Jeff Wagner is right around the corner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The average price of a gallon of regular gasoline in this area as of this morning, this is the average price, stood at $4.29 a gallon. That is the highest average price ever for a gallon of regular gas in the Milwaukee metropolitan area. Highest ever. Gasoline now at an all-time high. And this is, we're not even talking about diesel. Diesel, you know, if you're driving a truck, well, you know, or you've got a diesel-powered car, you're talking about, what, 550 or so. Gasoline prices through the roof. Inflation in March rose 8.5% compared with the same month a year earlier. That is the highest rate in four decades. Gasoline prices up about 50% from a year ago. Hotel costs have jumped nearly 30%. Airline fares rose 24%. Vehicle rental costs jumped nearly 14% if you can find a, a rental car. All of that is combining to make the summer of 2022 for vacation travelers the the summer from you know where. Now, for the last couple of years, because of COVID, things have been, you know, pretty much shut down. I mean, two years ago, you had almost nothing that was open. Um, Now it's been loosening up a little bit, and there's this incredible pent-up demand for people to want to go on vacation. At the same time, you are faced 
with these huge costs. If if you're going to drive, well, be prepared to spend just a lot more by the time you factor in the hotels and by the time you factor in the, the cost of, of gasoline, which appears to be doing nothing but, but go up. If you want to fly, well, you're going to be looking at fewer flights. You're going to be looking at increased costs, and then you're going to have to stay somewhere. So hotel costs um, up about 30%. Get ready for sticker shock if you're used to, hey, I'm used to traveling to Washington, D.C. All right, I, I stay at the same place. You know, get used to, like— whatever you used to pay, plus 30%. And this, of course, isn't even including things like, okay, food when you're eating out at restaurants and stuff like that. So costs are going through the roof. And at the same time, you've got this incredible pent-up demand for people who are sick of being you know, stuck at home. They want to go out. They want to enjoy their lives. They want to go on vacations. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How are spiraling, skyrocketing costs affecting your vacation plans this summer? Are you still going to do what you plan to do because life is short and you want to enjoy it? Or when you look at what it's going to cost, have you scaled back, changed, or, or maybe even canceled your plans? What are you doing this summer when it comes to vacations, and how is inflation playing into it? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. More Jeff Wagner right after this. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI-HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. And this is Jeff Wagner. See, one of the things I think is that given inflation, I think people maybe are still going to travel, but I think it's going to be, for example, a big year for in-state tourism because people might have said, well, maybe we would have driven to Disney World, but you know what? With all the costs, maybe we'll stick her closer to home. Kelly and Slinger. Kelly, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So our, our family of four just sat down actually last night and talked about our summer plans, and we had two ideas. One was to either fly down to Tampa and go to um, Anna Maria Island, and the other was to go to D.C. Well, we started pricing out our flights, and we noticed two things. First of all, the flights were outrageously expensive, yep. but I noticed that a lot of the airlines have cut their uh, their flights Mm-hmm. to not only um, Florida, but to D.C. So they're limited, which means flying out of Chicago, which is just as expensive. And when we started adding, adding everything up, we realized that it would be pretty close to double what we've paid in the past. And it's just, it meant completely changing our plans and coming up with an idea, which is, like you said, maybe seeing the state a little bit more. Yeah. No, I, I think, and, and Kelly, I mean, I think a lot of people are making that that calculation. It's just be, because, I mean, you, you, you look, you want to take the kids on a vacation, you want to go enjoy yourself, but at the same time, it, it is price sensitive. And when you sit there and say, okay, I've, I've budgeted $2,500 for this trip, and you're looking at five grand, well, that, that extra $2,500 has to come from somewhere. Absolutely. And just to give you some idea, in the past, for a family of four to fly to Tampa, we could get it usually under 1000 we're looking at close to 3000 now. Well, 
<laughs> wow. Thanks for the call. No, I, I I get it. I mean that that's what that's what the costs are. And then you say okay, you're going to drive. Well, all right, that's you know that's that's uh you know that's a uh, two that's twelve hours a day if you don't hit construction two days. And when you're talking about gas, that's four fifty or a gallon or more. You know, and you're staying in the hotels, and those costs are up. Jeff, my plans have changed. I'm limited to where I can drive on a single tank of gas. So essentially, I'm going to be staying in Wisconsin. Jeff, I typically take three trips in summertime. I'm now only taking two. One on Memorial Day weekend, we're driving to St. Louis and flying instead of flying somewhere else, we'll be a little cheaper. Found a hotel in Orbitz, used some reward points, and um, oh, I booked my trip to Las Vegas this morning. Had to book two separate airlines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the hotel rooms getting comped. Um, that's it, um, Jeff. I just returned from ten days in Ireland visiting my wife's family. Paid. $1,400 for a rental car a year and a half ago, paid $900 for 24 days. Costs are going through the roof, you know, everywhere. Um, Jeff, we changed our plans. We were looking at Montana. We were looking at Massachusetts. And um, in the end, we ended up going to Minocqua. <laughs> we rented a nice house, but even the cost of renting a home and renting a boat is outrageous that there was no way we could put flights on top of that. We're a family of seven. Yeah, and, and the texts go on and on and on. This is the real-world impact of, of inflation. And I mean, there's all this pent-up demand to travel, but the problem is for a lot of people, if you don't have that much disposable income and, and you're used to thinking, hey, I could go to X place for X amount of dollars, well, y- you better at least take a look at it because I think you might be surprised. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. There's just a couple thoughts on wrapping up our conversation about um, vacation travel and stuff. Jeff, back in November, my wife and I booked a flight to Spain, $2,800 total. Our flight got canceled last week on us with no notice. When we tried to reschedule the flight on the same day, that flight is now over $8,000. Wow. God, just it kind of gets my attention. I'm kind of curious because we're going in, in October for a weekend, like a Thursday to a Sunday. Fran and I are going with my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, Ruthie and Kenny, and my brother Scott and his girlfriend. We're going to go to Las Vegas for just four days, fly out Thursday morning, come back on Sunday, going to see Jimmy Buffett and things like that. And um, I booked the tickets, the plane tickets, the first day that they, they opened up uh, on Southwest. And I, I booked the hotel room months and months ago. I'm kind of curious. I think what I might do is just go back and see if I tried to book that trip today, how much it, it would cost. So, Mike Spaulding, vacation plans, you going somewhere this, this summer? We are not flying anywhere, but my wife does have a flight for a bachelorette party to Phoenix this fall. And the we went to Denver last fall, and the price to Phoenix, obviously I know it's a different location, is almost like double compared to what our flight to Denver was for the same airline, same right. basically same kind of time frame part of the year. So, yeah, we... Uh, we did notice it, and since we didn't have a big trip planned this year, it was a very much of a shocker when we opened up the Southwest app, and we're like, "Oh, what? This has to something is wrong here, probably." So yeah, we're feeling it. Yeah, no, I, I think everybody, um, everybody is. I during the break, I was looking at um, one of the 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 big things is is Disney World, and I I confess that I, I think Disney is a fine place. I, I'm not a roller coaster guy, so I, I never got that that gene. But my brother, for example, and when the kids were his kids were young, they used to they'd go all the time. I think. 
he's got part of a Disney timeshare or something. And we would, from time to time, you know, go down just as, as part of like a family vacation and stuff. But I, I just don't know how people do it. I was looking. Uh, my, my question was, okay, on the internet, what what is what would for a normal vacation of a family of four, what would it cost to, to go to Disney World? And I'm not talking about staying at, at, at some of the high-end places. Like you stay off a property. You get the you don't get the park hopper pass, so you can bounce around to different parks in the day. I was just curious as to, for the average family of four, and the numbers, and I think they're low. The numbers are coming in. They estimate it's about 5500 bucks for a family of four. I bet you it's more than it, it, it but I, I bet you it could go up e- easily would go up quick more quickly if, if if you're renting the car or whatever but I mean how do people afford that I don't know we we're uh, we're not parents so I do not know yet but I do know that just traveling for two people uh, it's a lot more than you would necessarily think and I think you're right with the right spot on with the Disney World thing if you just want one upgrade for four people or whatever it is I think that's gonna skyrocket I bet you you're closer to like I bet you were closer to ten thousand dollars than people would like to admit. If you really did like the forensic audit of what your trip was, I bet you you're right. You're closer to eight thousand, ten thousand. Right, because I, I mean, by the time you start to factor in, you know, the food and and all that sort of stuff, I just, yeah, I mean, and and again, I guess there's ways that you can economize. Like I say, you can, you you can stay, you know, you stay off property and stuff. But there's there's just no way around it. I mean, these these prices, and I think it's, I think a lot of people are having sticker shock when it comes to figuring this all out i think so too and also i think when you go to a place like disney world not a lot of people are i think looking to necessarily take the cheapest way out because it's kind of one of those you go one time or maybe two times with your kids when they're you know the perfect age to ride the rides but also still you know enjoy seeing the the mascots and stuff like that uh but yeah i think once you factor in food if you just upgrade again one day Think about like that's probably easily a thousand dollars you're adding to your trip, right? Right. Now. Yeah. Interesting. But, but I mean, again, it, it's you know, at the same time, life is short and you want to spend it. Here's a text, Jeff. Not only are the prices ridiculous, but traveling, you have to deal with the airlines moving your flights around. We're traveling up to Montreal. They've moved our flight coming home six times. One being a full day early, making us miss the event that we were going to attend. Yeah, that's that. Okay. Here, here's my story about that. So this summer. My wife is taking our granddaughter, her granddaughter, who graduates from high school this summer and is this this in a month or so, and is going to be going to the University of Minnesota to study nursing. So she's taking Gracie and one of Gracie's friends, and and they're going down to they're going to Florida. So we and and the the friend's father. You know, we decided on what the flights were going to be, so the friend's father booked a, a flight, direct flight, in the summer on Southwest. If you're flying to Fort Myers, they only have one direct flight a week, and that's on Saturdays. Okay, so we we book. I booked Fran and Gracie on a direct flight Southwest. It was like one thirty in the afternoon. I booked it the first day it opened up, so I get this there. So then I get this notice from Southwest saying that they've they've changed our flight. So I start looking at it, and they they took her and they moved they moved them from the direct flight at one o'clock in the afternoon to a flight that leaves at four thirty, goes through Baltimore, doesn't get into Fort Myers till midnight, and it, it's just it's a recipe for disaster. It's got it's just a recipe for getting stuck in Baltimore at nine o'clock at night, and you have to change planes. I'm like, wait a minute. So then I, I went back and I looked, and they, what they had done is they there's still a direct flight, but they moved it up to ten thirty, but they didn't put us on that. They they dumped them off. To 
to this other flight. Well, I, I was able to reschedule it and get everybody back on there and stuff. But again, I understand exactly what the texter is talking about. You, you book a flight, you work around your times, and then, you know, be be prepared. Uh, just be prepared that, you know, you're, you're going to have to watch this because it's chances are the flight time is going to get changed. And, and you got to be really aware of it. Like I say, I, I was able to get us rebooked, that, to get everybody rebooked at no charge and all. But it was still like, you know, wow, they, they just, they bumped it. My guess is some people said, oh, well, okay, I'll just, I'll go through Baltimore and I'll get in at midnight. Well, that's, that's not kind of how I roll. Angela in Hales Corners. Angela, you're on WTMJ. Um, hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. Good. What do you think? Um, well, I was just, well, um, this is in regards with, of course, the gas prices, but um, I have horses and a group of ladies that I've been riding with for years, for the last 20 years. We always get the horses. We trailer. We trailer out of town. Well, we had a trip planned for Mountain, Wisconsin at a nice, you can bring your horses. It's got cabins. But with the price of gas, it, we're just probably not going to do it. It's very costly with the gas being this price mm-hmm. um, to trailer two horses with a pulling horse horse trailer. Just too much. We'll probably just trailer around like the Kettle Moraine area, which is still going to be expensive, but not quite as bad. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, actually, I, I think this is, for a lot of average people, I think this is going to be a big year. For Wisconsin tourism, just because, I mean, people are going to say, well, I'd, yes. I'd really, I'd like to go to Montana, or I'd, I'd like to go to Colorado, or I'd love mm-hmm. to go to D.C., all of which are great places, but it's, maybe we'll, we'll see where we are in a year or two. Maybe this isn't, maybe yeah, this exactly. isn't the year so to I, do it. Like I said, when you're, yeah, when you're pulling a horse, two horses in a trailer, that, that really costs you have to have a lot of gas. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I right, and yeah. yeah, exactly. No, th- thanks for the call. No, I, I, ex- exactly, and uh, it, it's just, I mean, it, it's kind of affecting everybody, and it, it's sort of this interesting convergence of things because after two years of the pandemic, you've got this incredible, I think, you know, pent up desire on on the part of a lot of people to travel, but at the same time, you've you've got these different costs. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm fortunate because we're we're doing our listener trip, our cruise to Alaska that I'm very much looking forward to in early August, and, and I've got this trip in October and all, but but still, it, it's it's in the back of everybody's mind, and and I'm fortunate because I I don't have a family of I don't I don't have three kids that I'm trying to figure out. Okay, how can we do something special for those folks? And it's I think again, big year for Wisconsin tourism, and um, if you're if you're sitting down and planning your vacations, you know, be ready kind of for that sticker shock. All right. Is this a legitimate political issue or not? I will explain. We will discuss. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff, family of six here will never make it to Disney. The prices are outrageous. Jeff, family of four, we stayed at a mid-level resort on Disney property, meal plan, and the park hopper. Yeah, that lets you bounce between. That's a, that's ex, that's an expensive perk to let you bounce between different parks on the same day. Last time was six years ago. It was $10,000, including airfare and transport to from the airport. Um yeah, there's no question about that. Um, Jeff, I'd like to hear from people with RVs. <laughs> no, I, well, I mean, I, I don't know. That's, yes, your RVs, you're, you're paying through the nose for gas, but at least the difference with the RV is you don't have to necessarily pay the hotel costs and maybe you can cook some of your own food. It, it's just, it's, it's one of these challenges that are there. All right. Is this an issue or is this not? You have 
you have four main Democrats running for the Democratic nomination to challenge Ron Johnson. Okay, the, the principal players are the lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes. You've got the son of one of the owners of the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, Alex Lazary. Um, and then you've got the state treasurer. Her name is Sarah Godlewski. And then you've got probably the guy who, who's polling fourth, but is really, in some respects, the most interesting background is Tom Nelson, who is the uh, county executive from, from Appleton. And he's running for the nomination as well. He's the least well-funded. Godlewski ha- has a lot of, of money through married into a bunch of money. Alex Lazary, everybody knows he's the son of the, the Bucks billionaire owners and moved to Milwaukee a few years back. And, you know, he's, he's already put $5 million into his campaign. Um, Mandela Barnes is, of course, the lieutenant governor. He's not particularly well-funded right now because he's not independently wealthy, but he's got name recognition and other stuff going on him. So Tom Nelson is trying to to break through and, and find an issue that he can make some hay with. So what he has started talking about is he started talking about the taxpayer subsidies to build Fiserv Forum. Now, Fiserv Forum was partly financed by Herb Cole and by the people that bought the bucks. It was also financed with $250 million, billion, $250 million in, in bonds that were provided by the, the taxpayers. So, I mean, there's a, a bunch of money that was put forward by the, the taxpayers. And what Nelson is running on is he said, look, um, this, this deal um, cost taxpayers a fortune. And, you know, it, and it's going to cost taxpayers, you know, a, a fortune. The, the number that's thrown around is $250 million, but actually by the time you figure in, like, lost taxes and interest costs and stuff like that, it's going to be substantially more than that. And so the argument that's being made is we, we've got these billionaire owners. We should not, the stack taxpayers of Wisconsin should not have been expected to put in public money for this. If they wanted the facility, they should have paid for it themselves. Now, of course, the problem with that is that the owners of the Bucks probably wouldn't have, have done that if it wasn't for the taxpayers picking up a share of the new facility. They would have moved the Bucks somewhere else, and they would have found another community that would have been willing to build them an, an arena. I think that's kind of the reality of this because the owners of the Bucks had no ties to Milwaukee or anything like that. Now they've established some, you know, over the years, but you know when they were buying the Bucks from Herb Cole, they, they, there's no loyalty to Milwaukee necessarily. They could have moved it anywhere. At the same time, too, you look at at what Pfizer Forum has done to that area around the Park East, which was, and I talked about this for years, it was a moonscape, just an absolute moonscape. But now because you've got Pfizer Forum there, you have the Deer District. You have hotels that are in that area. You have bars. You have restaurants. So you really, it, it is, there's no question about it. It's it's taking off, and that area would not have taken off without Pfizer Forum. 
And the matter of fact, my evidence of that is the area didn't take off for years and years until you built it. So this issue that Tom Nelson is trying to glom onto is he's saying, look, I, I think I can make this argument that we shouldn't have the taxpayers paying this for this facility that, you know, um, for millionaires and, and billionaires. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I've heard this argument for decades now with American Family Field, formerly Miller Park. The The reality, I guess, as I look at this is, could the owners of the Bucks have afforded to build that facility themselves? And the answer is clearly yes. They, they could have afforded that. But the other reality is they wouldn't have. They They wouldn't have if it weren't for the contribution that the taxpayers made, I have no doubt that they would have picked up stakes and left. Just like with American Family Field, formerly Miller Park, yeah, could could the Brewers ownership group perhaps have afforded to pay for that facility? Maybe. But would they have done it? No. They would have relocated somewhere else. I guess I look at where the bucks are now. I look at all the activity downtown. I look at everything that's happened under the Park East. And it's tough at least from my perspective, to sell an argument that we would be better off if we did not have Pfizer Forum and the Bucks had left. 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, isn't from a perspective of economic development and just general interest in the city, isn't it pretty obvious that that, that was money that was well spent? Yes, I'm looking at the argument that Tom Nelson is trying to make, and I understand he's trying to break through, and I understand that if people are sympathetic to this, this is an issue where Lazary and Mandela Barnes, who supported this when he was in the state legislature, this is an issue where they might arguably be vulnerable. I just don't think it's a winning issue, certainly not in southeastern Wisconsin. Maybe it plays better across the rest of the state, but I don't get that there's a lot of people who are upset that you have a partially taxpayer-paid-for building downtown. Am I missing something? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a minute. More Jeff Wagner right after this. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. See, I think there's all sorts of issues that that are out there in the Democratic Senate primary, but attacking a couple of the candidates because they either benefited from or supported, you know, the, the building of Pfizer Forum with partially taxpayer dollars. To me, it just doesn't strike me as a winner. Jeff, it sounds, here's a text, sounds like a really stupid soapbox for Nelson to be standing on when the team has been in contention every year for the last four seasons and won a championship last year, right? It's it's not like the owners of the Bucks haven't put a bunch of money into the team, and you're starting to see that success, and you see all the people that are attracted to downtown, and you see all the the, the spinoffs. You see the restaurants. You see everything that, that's benefited from what's going on downtown, stuff that would not have happened were it not for Fiserv Forum. So I, I think it, just like I understand there's some people who still – still haven't gotten over the fact that with American Family Field, formerly Miller Park, that, you know, it it was built and there was that five-county sales tax. And it might be that the taxpayers might end up having to pay for some improvements. But I just – I look back over the time that that, that's been built, and it's difficult for me to figure out how anybody can argue that we would have been better off as a a region – and as a state, 
had the baseball team, the Brewers, you know, left Milwaukee and we would have still had, I don't know, the vacant county stadium, you know, sitting on those grounds. It's just, it's impossible to me to make that argument. Now, if you want to argue, well, I don't like this and I think that, you know, these billionaire owners should be able and responsible for building their own facilities, I'm sympathetic to that. But the reality is, in today's day and age, they don't have to do that. And so the choice is either cities pony up money or the communities or the states or whatever pony up money or the owners take their teams and, and they move out of out of town. And I think for both the Brewers and the Bucks, if that had happened, the community would be a lot less successful than uh, if that had happened than it is now. So I'm not sure that this is going to be a winning issue. Maybe there's people outstate that feel strongly about it, but still don't think so. 231, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Mike Spaulding. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of our texters, we were talking about you know, the, the the net benefit of places like American Family Field or Pfizer Forum. And, you know, one of our texters says, you might find it difficult to believe, but there are plenty of, plenty of people who couldn't care less about sports teams in their city, yet they have to pay taxes for new arenas and stadiums. Well, I, I don't doubt that there are people who, who don't care about the sports teams. But to me, th- that's not the question. The question is, is it a good investment or not? Is it, you know, is it a net gain for the area? Taking Pfizer Forum as an example, is the community, and and whether it's the city of Milwaukee or Milwaukee County or southeastern Wisconsin or the state, is it better off if you would have had the moonscape that was that, that whole Park East area, which is what it was for years and years and years? Is it better off now because you have Pfizer Forum and you have that huge economic development that, that's around there and all these businesses? that are moving in and this revitalization of that area. Is is it a net gain? Is it, you know, the, yes, the taxpayers shell out $250 million or more by the time you get all the costs in, but is it worth it? Is it worth it as an investment? And that's, I guess, what it's, it's not, do, do, do you care if you've got, you know, a major league sports team there? It's what does that major league sports team do? And, and that's that's, I think, the way you have to look at it. And again, you know, maybe you say, well, you know, who, who cares? I'm never going down there. What do I care about if there's, you know, all this economic development in this particular area? It doesn't benefit me. Well, maybe it does. Maybe it, it doesn't. But that's what the argument is. Okay. The what? A, oh gosh, it's it's more than a week or so ago. We we've now moved the discussion of abortion back to the forefront because of the leaked Supreme Court opinion indicating that at least five justices may be ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now. I've tried to talk people off of a ledge on on both sides of of this issue, and I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying to exploit this for for political gain because I I firmly believe that if if Roe versus Wade is overturned— Right. That that doesn't mean that in, in the real world, all of a sudden, you know, people aren't going to be able to get abortions. As a matter of fact, what I think is going to happen is that it's, you're going to put it back in the state legislature. And my guess is in Wisconsin, just my prediction, that you're going to have after, I guess, some drum banging on both sides, you're going to have the legislature, which is going to settle on some sort of what I would say is, is a middle ground. Um 
I don't know if it's when we regard to elective abortions, is it 15 weeks? Is it 16 weeks? Is it 20 weeks? I, I don't know exactly where it is. But my guess is that you're, you will never see anybody prosecuted under an 1849 law, any doctor prosecuted for performing an abortion. That the I firmly believe that the vast majority of Americans believe that there should be some ability at certain points for people to get abortions, for women to get abortions, but at the same time, elective abortions beyond a certain point is just abhorrent. And and I think that's where, you know, they, they will find that middle ground. 94% of the abortions in this country are performed in the first 15 weeks. And so my guess is they'll settle somewhere. Now, I understand some people think that's not going to happen, but time, time will tell. In any event, there's all sorts of people that are upset over what the Supreme Court might do. We don't know exactly what they're going to do. We probably won't for another month or two. But there's people that are outraged. And again, there's other people who are feeding this outrage because it benefits them politically. We're not talking about inflation. We're not talking about the border. We're talking about, you know, abortion. So, okay, I I get it. And what's happened is a number of the protesters, the people who are upset that, okay, the Supreme Court might reverse Roe versus Wade and find that there's no constitutional right to an abortion and that this, this is a matter for the state legislatures. What's happened is a number of them have taken to the streets. And this is this is one of the common tactics that's been used over the course of the last couple of years. You don't like something a politician does. You, you show up outside their home and you bang the drums and you try to call attention to your issue and you hope the TV cameras are going to come out and you're, you're going to get on the 5 o'clock news. Well, this has now been taken to a new level because over the last week, you have had a number of protesters, hundreds in some cases, who have gone out to the homes of Supreme Court justices, and they have protested in an effort to, I think, try to intimidate these justices into maybe changing their position. Now, this is this is pretty much unprecedented. As a matter of fact, I, I think it is so concerning that you just had the, the U.S. Senate on a, a voice vote unanimously agree to increase security for Supreme Court justices and, and their families, because now you have these people who've chosen to show up and to protest outside the, their homes. There is a law on the books which makes it a federal crime to go out and to try to influence a judge's decision and use intimidation to do that. And now the Biden Justice Department has no no interest at all at trying to go down this route. If these were conservative protesters who were showing up outside the door of a couple of the liberal members of the Supreme Court, you know this would be viewed completely differently by by the media and probably the Justice Department. But because these are protesters showing up outside the homes of some of the conservative justices, well, it, it kind of gets this cricket, crickets. But this is the tactic that is now being employed. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, does this go too far? Is You, you have a, a judge, in this case, who may or may not be willing by coming out with a ruling that, that you don't like. I mean, should it be lawful for people to go to that judge's home 
and then stage protests. Now, again, this is it's not necessarily unique because we've seen this. You, you saw protests in Wauwatosa, for example, where protesters went outside the house of the mayor and things like that. Or remember, protesters went and were at the residence of the girlfriend of that Wauwatosa, former Wauwatosa police officer who was involved in various controversies. So this is a common technique now of protesters to show up at homes. But this is, I think, one of the first times where you've seen people actually go out to judges' homes and stage these protests. Should this be against the law? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, is there a balancing? People have the right to protest in this country. People have the right to go down to City Hall. People have the right to stage marches. But when you target the family members of of political figures, public figures, or judges or justices, does that go too far. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer is, it might. What do you think? Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here is the deal, and, and this is What I think the challenge should be for the President of the United States and the Attorney General of the United States, who is very, very interested in, for example, investigating fully the January 6th Capitol takeover and determining whether responsibility lies, you know, outside the people who actually stormed the Capitol. Well, there there is a statute, and and, and it's— you know, it's been on the books forever. 18 U.S.C., that's the criminal code, uh, 1507, picketing or parading. I'm going to read it to you. Whoever, with the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding the administration of justice, or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer in the discharge of their duty, pickets or parades— in or near a building housing a court of the United States, or in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, should be shall be guilty of of a misdemeanor. It's imprisoned up to one year. That's a misdemeanor. There is no question in my mind that when you have these people who are going out and are protesting this decision that may or may not come be issued outside the personal residences of these Supreme Court justices, that is clearly being done with an intent to try to influence the the decision. It's just, I think it's crystal, crystal clear. Now, I, I, I think it's a crime, and I think the Department of Justice should be looking at that. Now, on top of that, There is this larger issue that's out there, and I want to be consistent here. I have been arguing for the last several years that protests at the homes, the personal residences of of various elected officials, I think even if it's not illegal, like it might be in the case of when you pick out a federal judge, but even if it's not illegal, it is fundamentally wrong. I I think it it crosses the line. Look, it's one thing if you object to a particular decision and you want to stage a rally at a park or you want to march down to Ron Johnson's office at the federal building because you don't like a position on something or or whatever, that that I, I think is legitimate protest. When you decide that we are going to go into individual neighborhoods 
and we're going to try to disrupt things, I think that crosses the line. I've been arguing this. The first time I remember seeing this in Wisconsin was when Scott Walker was the governor. And you would regularly have people who would go out and they'd protest at Walker's house because they didn't like Act 10 or they didn't like that. And and you'd have the, the peace would be disturbed. There would be, I think, attempts to intimidate neighbors. There would be intents to intimidate the, the family. And I thought it was fundamentally wrong. I think it probably should have been illegal. I definitely think it should have been prosecuted as disorderly conduct. But again, because it was Scott Walker, you know, people didn't want to deal with this. But this is, I think, something that is getting out of control. I'm not saying you put unreasonable limits on protest, but I think also— Doing this, if you're trying to win hearts and minds to your cause, I don't think it works. I, I think the vast majority of people, wherever you are on an issue, think families are off limits. And, and the idea that you're going to go to people's residences and you're going to try to yell and scream to try to make a point and try to get yourself on the 5 o'clock news, I think that that's wrong. I think it turns more people off. And maybe, just maybe, a note to the media, if the media didn't bring out all the TV cameras and give the people who are doing that the attention that they crave, being outside the home of a Supreme court justice, maybe people would be less likely to do it. Just saying. When we come back, we're going to find out what Jane and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. 